All right, so uh, we've been walking through this, uh, the, first, uh, the first epistle of John, so 1 John, um, for a few weeks now, and um, I, I, I want to just be kind of upfront and honest where we're at today. Uh, so some, some passages in Scripture are funner to preach than others. Um, last time we, we looked at the, the, the verses immediately preceding these, um, so it's chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, and that was one of the fun passages to preach on. Um, it was God telling his, reminding his children, assuring his children that despite your obedience, despite the level of your obedience, or maybe I should say despite the level of your disobedience, um, and despite the level of your experience, um, that they have, God's children, God's people, have been forgiven. They have entered into covenant with God. They have overcome the evil one. So that's a, you know, it's a, it's a fun text, uh, a fun text to preach on. Um, this week, the text immediately after that um, is a little bit more sobering. Um, it's what we, uh, what we often call here, uh, a severe mercy. Um, so, so that we've been talking about um, how. That the epistle of John, John's purpose in writing the epistle is uh, to these people is to remind everyone or to encourage them in their faith, so they may have an unshakable uh, foundation of their faith. And um, I'm going to parse that out just a, just a second. Um, the message of First John isn't that everyone that hears his message should have confidence that they have eternal salvation. Right? That's that would be that would be kind of folly. Um, the message of First John is that everyone who hin- who hears the indicators of faith, ever who everyone who possesses the indicators of faith, should feel confident that their faith is strong, and the thing that they pay, they they place their faith in is sure. Um, so, in other words, the purpose of John writing this epistle is not to say, there, there, you know, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. Um, John's purpose is to build confidence for the genuine believer and also to shake the confidence of any who might have confidence that is unreasonable. So the Bible is pretty clear that some people in the church um, need to be assured uh, of their faith. As weak, as, um, as inexperiential, or is it unexperiential? Uh, as, as non-experiential um, as it may be, as fragile as it is, um, it, it is a gift from God that cannot be removed. Yet the Bible is equally clear that other people in the church need to be awakened uh, to the fact uh, that, that they are in a slumber. Um, there are those who need to be shaken from their, their self-deception. Um, there are uh, many times uh, in the Bible in which this is true. Uh, it, it talks about uh, men and women who... Um, who believe that they are okay, but in reality, um, they're, uh, they are in eternal danger. Um, they may know a lot about the gospel, but they do not have a relationship with Jesus. And so I think it's safe to say 
um, this passage and this sermon is going to be a little bit um, somber. Um, but the goal is not to make you feel guilty. The goal is repentance-inducing. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Let's go back um, for a second. There's many times, let me give you just a couple of examples in the New Testament um, where, um, where the New Testament authors are trying to take people who believe, who believe that they're okay, who, who are complacent uh, in their salvation, who, who, are, uh, who, who maybe have a mistrusted confidence, and, uh, and the New Testament writers grabs them and tries to wake them from their slumber. So uh, one such place, um, there, actually, if you, if you read through the, the teachings of Jesus, um, Jesus brings this up many times. So one place, one popular place is the parable of the sower. Um, so if you remember the parable of the sower, Jesus uh, tells this story about uh, seeds that are sowed. Um, and, uh, and there are four different, um, different types of people. Um, in which seed is sown, um, and of those four types, um, two out of three of those, or two or three of those, I should say, um, who received, who ultimately received the gospel, they went through a season that they appeared to receive it, and, and then it fell away, and then it was choked out. There's four types of people in the parable. So one received the gospel uh, and went on to a salvation. Another uh, type, um, it, it basically just fell flat uh, upon reception. But two of those, the, the, the middle two, appeared to receive it, appeared to begin to produce fruit, but then it fell away. Um, there's a place in, in Matthew 7 where Jesus says that many will say to me on that day, talking about the judgment day, talking about the last day, talking about the day that we stand before Jesus in ultimate judgment. Um, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There's a place in John's gospel. Uh, where Jesus says, If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Um, even this week in CBR, um, as, as we've been reading through Hebrews, which is the, um, a part of the, the chapter that we, we just read in the call to worship, uh, the Hebrews writer says, We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. It's conditional. So there's a, there's a sense, um, there's a, a very real sense in which the Bible calls all of us to be a little bit suspicious about our own salvation. There's a sense in which the Bible calls us to not be complacent. There's, there's wisdom found, and it is reasonable to be just a little bit suspicious. So, so far, as we walk through this epistle of, of 1 John, um, we have uh, come across these indicators. So we've talked about as, as John is, is trying to assure his readers uh, of, uh, of salvation, as tries, he's trying to build their confidence, he's kind of giving them some diagnostics, some indicators, so you can know if, if, if your confidence is rightly founded or not. 
And so he's given us these diagnostic tests so you can tell if you're an actual believer, a genuine Christian, or if you're a fraud. Um, and so the first indicator uh, was, uh, we looked at a few weeks ago, was in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. The first indicator was increasingly increasing repentance. Um, so this is really good news, actually. Uh, the first indicator of a genuine Christian, of a genuine believer is increasingly walking in the light, is that is increasingly confessing their sinfulness, past, present, and future. That's good. That's good news, because the first diagnostic isn't uh, giving a certain, a certain amount of money, tithing a certain amount. The first indicator isn't um, getting, uh, getting a firm control on this aspect of your life. The first indicator of faith is it overcoming your lust problem. No, the first indicator is simply recognizing, acknowledging, confessing, and being honest about your massive need for the grace of God in your life on a daily basis. All right, so the, the second indicator uh, that we talked about was... Um, the second indicator of a genuine faith is uh, that the genuine Christian loves more and more. They obey more and more. Um, so at first, when we look at those two, the first two indicators, obedience and confession, they seem like they might be at odds, right? Um, uh, but as we increasingly confess our need for Jesus we increasingly receive from Jesus grace to respond and to live more like Jesus. So, as we, let me, let me put this a, a different way. As we increasingly live in the light, we increasingly live like Jesus. Uh, if we walk in the light, we increasingly walk with Jesus. Um, confession of more sin actually leads to more obedience. One of the, one of the paradoxes um, in Scripture, in the Gospel, is actually the way we stop sinning, the way we become more and more obedient, is that we confess more and more how disobedient we are. That is one of the primary engines in the Gospel that drives our growth in Christ. And so, that brings us now to the third indicator that we read about today. And here's the third indicator. The genuine Christian loves the world less and less over time. Um, so let's, uh, if, you, if you've got your Bibles, let's look at 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 15. Um, we read, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If, so here's the, here, here's the sense where that indicator comes in. Here's the conditional statement, right? Um, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. A way to grow in confidence is to see a decreasing love for the world in our lives. So, again... The sermon, this teaching, this, these three verses in First John um, should be 
convicting, they should be repentance-inducing as an indicator of true faith. If we remember, if we go back to the parable um, of the sower, the third type of uh, the, the third type of soil in which the parable of the sower indicates is the one is one that appeared to have received the gospel for the longest. Because, but ultimately, the gospel, the faith, was ultimately did not take root. It did not bear fruit. What happened? What happened in that third parable? Does anybody remember? Anybody remember what, what choked out? Thorns. The, yep. That was the thorns. And the thorns, Jesus says, are um, uh, the, the care for this world and the deceit of riches. When he explains it, that's, those are the, that's the phrase he uses. The, the, the cares of the world and the deceit of riches. So, again sermon uh, on love for the world and the deceit of riches is going to be sobering. All right, so I've, I've, I've tried to set the stage as much as I can. You're, everybody, everybody's genuinely excited about what comes forward. Um, there's, a, a, there's a place um, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, and it goes by in a verse. It's, it's very quick. It's e- it'd be easy to miss. Um, but there's a place where... Um, there's a, 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 a follower of Christ, or the, um, it's actually a man who's on mission with Paul. His name is Demas. And we're told, just passingly, that Demas deserts Paul, that he abandons the mission, that he walks away from the gospel. And, and in that one little fleeting verse, we're told why. This guy who apparently, who seemingly had enough faith to join Paul's missionary team, he walks away, and Paul tells us he walks away because he was in love with this present world. So, in order to understand this third indicator better, um, it feels fairly important to me that we ask two questions. Um, what does it mean to love the world? And how can I love the world less? So, there you go. These are your two points. What does it mean to love the world? And how can I love the world less? All right, so first off, what does it mean to love the world? Um, if what John is telling, here, telling us here is true, namely uh, that the person who loves the world doesn't love the Father, that's what he says, um, if, if that's true, then this question seems pretty important. What's it mean to love the world? So let me suggest that at minimum, and I think we'll unpack this as we continue to walk, walk through this epistle, but at minimum, John is saying this. To love the world um, in a way that is wrong is to have an excessive and idolatrous desire for the things of this world. Let's So look at verse 15. Um, Do not love the world or anything in the the world. And then verse 16 elaborates um, on what it means by anything in the world. Um, he says, for everything in the world, that is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. 
Um, so let's break those three down, right? So the first is lust, lust for the flesh. The word that the, that the, the NIV translated lust, some of your, if you, have, if you have another translation, it might come up something different. Um, but the, 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 the word, so when, when John wrote this, when John wrote the New Testament, or when John wrote his epistles in the New Testament, but the entire New Testament as well, uh, was written in Greek. Um, and the, uh, the word that they used uh, here is epithumia. Um, so yeah, there's like five or six words that come up in sermons a lot, and epithumia is one of them. Um, and, and epithumia is a compound word. Um, uh, thumia, Phil's calling. Um, thumia is, um, it means desire. Uh, but epi, um, epi is a, a, a prefix that means um, over or idolatrous or hyper. So whenever, whenever uh, John uses the word epithumia, he's saying a hyper desire, an over desire, um, a, a, a lustful desire. And so... What John is talking about here is, uh, obviously, inordinate desires. To love the world is to love a good thing in the world as if it were an ultimate thing. So, this word, epithumia, is used 30-some times in the New Testament. And... Um, 90% of the times it's used uh, in, in a derogatory fashion. It's used uh, to describe our idolatrous relationship with the things of this world. Um, but there's a couple of times in which, which epithumia is used in a, in, in a positive way. One of those, those places where epithumia is used in a positive way is in Philippians chapter 1, where, where Paul says um, that it is his, uh, his deep desire his epithumia, to see Jesus face to face. Now, what that tells me, what that should tell us, is that a human's deepest desire is meant for and can only be satisfied by communion with God, by relationship with the Creator, by worshiping the Lord. Um, and it should tell us that we are loving, anytime that we are loving this world or anything in this world with the same kind of passion and the same kind of relationship, the same kind of um, intensity that is meant that is, uh, that is meant for, or right for, or fitting for God, we've misplaced, um, we've, we've misplaced our hope. So the human heart right, is, was designed with this God-sized affection for, let's put it this way, the human heart was designed with a God-sized affection for and a, a God-sized passion to worship its creator. Now, notice I didn't say um, that the human heart was created with a God-sized need to be loved. It's easy to it, it's easy to bend the gospel towards me, right? Um, what I said was the human heart was created with a need to love, 
The human heart was created with the need to worship something that is God-sized. The issue is that the fallen human heart continues on its quest to set that God-sized affection on something. It continues with a passion to worship in a God-sized way. However, alienated as we are from God by sin, um, we take our God-sized affection and we fix it on, we obsess over, and we orient its life around the created thing rather than the creator. When, when John uses the word epithumia, when, when we translate that lust, the, the problem is not that we desire the things of this world. The things are not bad things. Sin is, not, is typically not doing a bad thing. That's not how the Bible defines sin over and over and over again. The Bible defines sin as taking a good thing and elevating it to an ultimate thing. Taking a created thing and worshiping it as we should only our creator. The problem is that we have this hyper desire. That we, that the, the flesh, that we in our sinfulness, we lust after money, that we lust after vehicles, we lust after sex, and we lust after relationships or children or careers or comforts or success or perfections or accolades or adoration or just name anything. Those things aren't bad of themselves. Verse 15 um, literally says... Do not love the world or anything in the world. We can take any good thing that God has put in the world and we can make it an ultimate thing. So, lust of, that's lust of the flesh. Let's go on to the next one. Um, lust of the eyes. So the same word, um, epithumia here. John is saying ordinarily our eyes are the bridge uh, that connects the lust of the flesh um, and a good thing that our eye wants. So we know this from ex- experience, right? We see something uh, that we don't have. I want you to think about um, your experience in this. I don't want you to just you know, let my words fall over you, um, but I want you to think about the things um, that, uh, that, that you see, that you lust for with your eyes, and then they become ultimate things in your hearts, right? Maybe, um, I don't know, for you, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a career, uh, maybe it's a, uh, a, a certain food, or maybe it's a certain dollar amount in your bank account. Um, maybe it's recognition, adoration, Whatever it is, we see that thing, and we begin to desire that thing more than we desire God. We begin to believe, we begin to tell ourselves that um, I would be a lot more satisfied. I would be a lot more secure 
I'd be a lot more, uh, I'd be a lot happier. I'd be, I'd have some room to breathe and to, um, uh, to I'd have some financial security, whatever the lot, whatever it is we tell ourselves. If I only had that thing, then I would be satisfied. Then things would be a little bit better. Then life would be okay. And we begin to give the thing more affection in our heart than it deserves. We begin to think about it. We begin to go to sleep uh, worrying about it. We begin to stress over it. When we wake up, it's the first thing on our mind. We begin to orient our lives and our relationships around getting that thing. And we do this even though um, even though over and over in our lives we have gone through this cycle. Right? We do this because even though that over and over in our lives we have constantly seen a thing that somebody else had, desired it for our own, achieved it, and then the high dies off after a few days. And then we're on to the next thing. Um, moving from the last thing uh, that didn't satisfy us, seeing something new um, out of si- outside, of course, of what we currently have, uh, and we begin to crave, we get to long for, we begin to organize our lives around, we begin to seek after, and we begin to worship that thing. Uh, no wonder Jesus uh, tells us that it is, uh, if you're, no, no wonder Jesus uses the uh, radical language uh, whenever he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, it is better for you to live your life with one eye than have both eyes in hell. All right, lust, lust, lust of flesh, lust of eyes, the last one. Um, that that John uses is the lust of flesh, um, and and what he means there is boasting in our possessions. So, um, love of the world uh, and the things in the world is revealed uh, in our boasting about and in our taking pride in the things uh, that we have, in thinking that we are better than others because of the the objects that we possess. If I can claim that, if I can claim um, success in areas where others have been unsuccessful, I can justify myself being better than everyone else. I don't know what that is for you. Um, It might be um, I have a better car. Um, it may be that I have a prettier girlfriend, or it may be that I have a better position in my job, or um, a, a superior relationship, or a nicer house, or a, a sexier vacation. Um, whatever it is, it's an indicator um, of the things that we worship. Um, I find it. Uh, I, I find it in myself often, um, shamefully, um, and, and, and as much as I hate it, I find it in myself often in my career, measuring up my worth uh, to those around me. Um, for those uh, who, uh, who have higher positions, who make more money, I feel inferior to them. For those and who have lower positions, who make less money, I feel superior. 
that is um, nothing except a pride of life. All right, so let's summarize here. Um, when John says, don't love the world, at minimum, he means this. He says, do not see something that you don't yet have, obsess over it, crave it, long for it, pursue it with a divine passion, and then once you get it, once you gain it, once you accomplish it, once you hoard it, don't, don't then feel better about yourself than all the other people who don't have it. That's the love of the world. Feeling bad or getting depressed because we don't have what other people have is still lust of the world. Um, it's just a less successful version of it. To feel less than other people because of what we have is still to subscribe uh, to the world system of values uh, that my value is based on what I have and based on what I've earned, based on what I've achieved, based on what I've accomplished. It's still to believe that the goal of life is found in accomplishments and in possessions and making a name for ourselves. All right. So... If that is what it means to love the world, uh, we should probably move on to how can we love the world less and less. Um, if this is an indicator of genuine faith, that, I, that we can grow our confidence, uh, that we are being saved by God um, as we decreasingly love the things of the world, a decreasing... Uh, as it, we can have confidence in our, our salvation. We can have confidence in our faith as we see a decreasing um, capacity for idolatry. How do we do it? Um, now, let me stop. Let me pause for a second and let's point out the indicator that John is talking about here is not complete lack of love for the world. Um, John has made it abundantly clear in this short epistle already, right, that we are all sinners and that we will all sin continuously in this life. John said that every present tense moment, we have to confess that we are still sinning, that we are still falling short, that we are continuing to idolize the things that we should not idolize. Um, he says that if we confess at any point in time in our lives that we are without sin, that we are liars, and the Lord is not in us, the gospel is not in us. And so it is not logical, it is not biblical, it is not wise to think that I will ever be without sin or without idols in my life. So the indicator is not to have no love for this world, but it's to decreasing love, to have, to have decreasing love for this world. So there's two things I think this passage um, shows us in how we do that. Um, first, um, we realize that the things that we are craving, the things that we are pursuing, the things that we are seeking out, uh, seeking after, um, they are, uh, they are fleeting. They are dying away. So verse, verse 17. Um, the world and its desires pass away. 
but whoever does the will of the Lord lives uh, forever. So this word passing away, most often in the Greek, most often in the New Testament, it's used for Jesus passing people by. Um, the world is passing away. The, the, the things in this world are passing away just like Jesus passes by someone, just like anyone passes by someone. So John is saying that in the grand scheme of things, the world and the things in, the wor- in, uh, in this world, um, that uh, the desires that we have, the, uh, the objects that we place our affections, the objects that, that, that we tend to worship, uh, those things are temporal and they're transient. And so it helps to love the world less if we realize that the things that we obsess over, the things that we deeply care about today, if we stop and think about those, that we know it, it helps uh, it, it helps to know that those things will pass away tomorrow. Um, think about this in your own lives. Think about the things that over that in your past um, that you have sacrificed for. You have sacrificed either time or energy or money and resources uh, because you had to have something. And then you get it, and where is it today? If we remember that the things that we crave, the things we crave, the things we long for, the things we worship for, they pass away, that helps us slightly to love the world less. Most of the things that we've craved in the past are gone. They've passed away. Um, But secondly, and more importantly, um, the way that we begin to love the world less and less is to set our deepest affections on an object worthy of our worship. So look, look at verse, um, look at the second half of verse 15 again. Um, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father um, is not in, uh, in them. So John is using present tense verbs here. He doesn't say, if you love the world at all, at any point in your life, you can't possibly love the Father. John is saying that in the in this present moment, when your uh, when your epith- when your epithumia when your lust is on a created thing that you in that moment cannot love the Father with your deepest affections. If I am uh, if I am worshiping the create the create the created thing the created, I can't simultaneously be worshiping the Creator. So in other words, when we are loving the eternal God with the love that he deserves, let's just inverse it, when we love the eternal God with the love that he deserves, we cannot possibly set too much affection on the created things. So when I'm worshiping the, create, uh, the created, I, if, if it's true that I'm putting my affection on the created, I can't then at the same time worship the creator. The inverse is also true. That if I uh, am putting my, my worship and my love and my adoration on the creator, then I can't be overcome with worship of the created. Um, there's a, uh, there's a, 
uh, a Puritan, a theologian, um, uh, several years ago, hundred years, few hundred years ago, um, named Thomas Thomas Chambers, uh, and uh, and Chambers wrote a uh, a book. He wrote a little article called uh, "The Expuls- the Expulsive Power of a New." Affection. Um, you can Google it. It's only about 11 pages. Um, it's a kick and read. Um, it, and and what, he, um, what he essentially said um, in, in that article uh, is it's a lot more effective to love something new, that is something worthy of your love, than to try to stop loving something unworthy of your love. In other words, he argues uh, that feeding a new a new affection um, does a much more effective and efficient job at expelling a previous affection. Everybody follow me? Yeah, okay. Um, if, I, if I'm loving something, if I'm idolizing something, uh, and, and I want to stop, the way, is not to, uh, the way to stop loving that or to love that less, to love that ideal less, is, is, not, um, is not to white-knuckle it, is not to uh, try to starve that misaffection, but it's to place my affection on something greater. So when we start to deal with our idolatry, um, when considering the fact that it's all passing away, the more powerful, the more effective, the more efficient way to, uh, to, to, to reduce our love for that idol is to proactively set our affections on an object, on a reality, on a person worthy of that affection. The best way to expel false worship of a created thing is to engage in the true worship of the creator who made you, who took on flesh for you, who lived for you, and who died to save you. So if our love of this world decreases as our love for the Father increases, if our um, enslavement to our idols decreases, the more we worship our Creator, how does our love for the Father increase? How does our worship for the Creator increase? Um, later on in First John um, chapter 4, Uh, We're told, John writes, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. To stop loving the world, love the Father. And to love the Father... Look again at how deeply, at how exhaustively the Father has loved you in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, gracious God, 
Um, we thank you uh, once again for this, um, this reminder, um, as difficult uh, and as severe as it, as it is. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you love us too much to allow us uh, to be self-deceived, um, but you uh, long for us uh, to walk in the light, um, to receive um, your uh, assurance uh, of salvation, um, to um, you long for your children to know um, that they have overcome the evil one, um, not because uh, of their obedience, not because of their experience, not because of how well they do with this thing called Christianity, but because they have a strong and a sure advocate in Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we pray that you would lead us um, to further repentance uh, and further faith um, as we uh, come into your throne room, as we come to your table, uh, and uh, we dine with you. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.